This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. So I'm sitting here on the break, just having a cup of coffee, and I'm thinking, there's really only one question for Allison Lucan, Seattle Kraken studio analyst, part of the Too Many Men podcast, and that is, is everything great or is everything really great with the Seattle Kraken? That's really the only question. Let's bring her aboard. Allison, how are you? <laughs> I, I'm great. Really great. <laughs> how are you? Well, yeah, you're great. You're, uh, I'm, I'm great. I'm really great. It's awesome. Uh, end of the week, looking forward to the weekend. And Saturday always means Hockey Night in Canada, and that's fun. Um, but no, like, it doesn't seem like anyone's having more fun than Seattle right now. Like, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I looked at the this month. For the Kraken, first week, four games. Second week, four games. Third week, four games. And then it eases off in the final week, and it's only three. Like, Allison, the schedule maker tried to destroy Seattle in January. Like, I looked at the calendar and said, this is the month that is going to break the Kraken. Like, okay, they put up some wins. We're in a, they're in a playoff spot, and that's cute. But January is coming, right? This is winter is coming. Like, January is coming for the Seattle Kraken, and this is where they get broken. Um, not only are they not broken, but they're the biggest story in the NHL right now. They've won seven games in a row, as you know, six of them on the road. And they just did to the Boston Bruins in Boston what no one has been able to do so far this season. And the question is how? How have they been able to do this? You're right there. You see it all. You hear it all. You watch everything. How have they been able to do this, Allison? <laughs> well, you know, this coaching staff keeps a lot of their secrets close to the vest, but I think it starts with a mentality. And if you go back to the last game of 2022, Edmonton came into Climate Pledge Arena and basically spanked Seattle in their own building. And I think that for the players who were part of this team last season, that, that was a reminder of how rough last year was. And the leadership and the people who were here last year said, never again. And you saw a total commitment to playing the right way and focusing on doing this as a group. And that's when the win streak started. I think there's, there's that mentality. There's that commitment. There's that commitment to each other. And then I think tactically yeah. they're making the adjustments every game to, to meet their opponent. And they're scoring first, which is huge. But, you know, you look at Boston last night. What did they do? They used that wide forecheck to counter the breakouts that Boston likes to use with all that passing. And then they're, you know, quick countering up when they get their stick on the puck and and just frustrating Boston into submission. You know, I think one of the questions that we're asking ourselves, too, because this is, and there are a couple of new players on the squad, certainly, and we think of, you know, Oliver Bjorkstrand, for example. But, um, you know, basically this is the same team that we saw last season. I know, you know, this is a full season of, of Matty Beneers, and that's significant. Um, but this is a lot of what we saw last year. And I think that one of the questions is, where was this last year? Where was this last year, Allison? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is true it's a lot of the same group. But particularly towards the end, this group was without Brandon Tanev. They were without Jaden Schwartz. There were Matty Beneers only came in for those last 10 uh, you know, so there were some changes going on with the lineup this year to next. But I do think that, again, and we, we talk about this all the time with any team. The way your team starts sets such a tone for the rest of the season. And the minute the Kraken stumbled in those first eight, ten games last season, in a COVID season where no one knew each other, you know, Jordan Eberle was, was talking with you guys on 32 about the frustration and the emotion of going to an expansion team. There was no cohesion. So I think that, you know, all of that snowballed into an unrecoverable campaign. Um, And and that's the way it looked, and that's certainly the way that it felt. You know, I had a a few people, I'm curious your comments on this one, because you just mentioned COVID a second ago. We've seen teams, well, specifically players, and I think about, hmm, I think about players like Carter Hart, and I think about a lot of younger players that were really hurt by COVID. Uh, a lot of younger players that, you know, didn't have families to go to and, and hang out with. They just had themselves, maybe their partner. If they're single, maybe their cat, 
maybe their dog or their goldfish and, and, and that was it. And I've had a couple of people tell me, you know, one of the things, and Seattle never talks about this, but it's true, one of the teams that was really hurt by COVID were the Seattle Kraken, that there was a better team in there, and now we're starting to see it. Agree, disagree? Oh, 100, 100%. You know, this, this was a team that they're literally getting on the plane to go to their first ever game as a team, and a huge chunk of the yeah. core guys are in protocol. And then they're racing some of them to get to Vegas on time. I mean, it was just a shambles way to, to start things. And again, I think, you know, a group and team matters. And what you don't want to be the guy that brings your whole team down by bringing COVID into the room and infecting your teammates. And when you don't have any chemistry to rely on already, I think that heightens that whole kind of arms length reaction to building relationships within your group. And, and there was, there was no way for them to settle in with one another. And then that meant there was no way for them to settle in as a team. Uh, I want to get back to the season right now, but I want to get a little bit ahead of myself. I was a huge and still am Ken Griffey Jr. fan. Uh, now that we know where the Winter Classic is next year and it's Seattle and Vegas and we've just seen like a really strong, like I really wanted to meet Tim, Tim Wakefield in Boston. We were there. I didn't get a chance to do it. Drags. I loved Wakefield as well. Um, Winter Classic next year. Uh, it's at a baseball park again, uh, which I think is the better backdrop, I think, for these things in a football stadium where the arena can kind of get lost or kind of blur a little bit. I love the more intimate setting of a baseball stadium. Uh, is there any chance we have cameos, whether it's, I don't know, Ken Griffey or Randy Johnson or whomever? Are there any whispers around, uh, around the Kraken about what we may see next year at the Classic? Well, I'm on the road, so I'm not hearing anything they're doing in the office right now. But uh, if I know anything <laughs> about this group and this this organization, they are going to make sure that this event highlights and celebrates the history of sports in Seattle and the community of Seattle. And, Jeff, if you promise to come out, I keep harassing you when we're going to see each other again. If you promise to come out, I'll put an ask in for you. Please do. And uh, if you could uh, ask them if they could wear the uh, Seattle Metropolitans uh, uniforms, that would be fantastic <laughs> as well. Any, ch- any chance of that happening while we're going in the Wayback Machine? I will get on that. It's on the list. I'm messaging people right now. All right. All right. We'll, we'll catch up with each other at All-Star on, on the beach, and we'll, uh, we'll go over all these notes. Okay, back to, this, back to this year's edition of the Seattle Kraken. The one player who could, well, it's a lot of players that impress. And I, I know I spend a lot of time and uh, use a lot of oxygen talking about Daniel Sprong. And I promised Elliot that I would not stop, but at least calm it down. So I'm going to park that one. And I want to get the Tolvin in with you. But can we park some minutes here and talk about Vince Dunn? You know, Vince Dunn was, like a lot of players that find themselves on, in expansion drafts, kind of buried with the St. Louis Blues. And you understand it. Like there's some elite level defensemen playing above him. We all knew that there was a better defenseman in there than we had seen. Uh, obviously, Seattle felt the exact same way. And now, you know, much like anyone, you know, uh, in Niagara will, you know, text at me or DM me about how, how great Vince Dunn was in Niagara. And now we're starting to see that exact same Vince Dunn in Seattle. All of a sudden, like Vince Dunn is playing the most, like the, the best hockey we've ever seen in the NHL. Uh, and that's probably just a byproduct of he's able to play higher in the lineup and get big, big minutes. Your thoughts on Vince Dunn? Yeah, I, I agree. And I think, you know, it's people are starting to talk about Vince rightly. Um, you know, he's lead, uh, Dave Tomlinson, who does color for us on, on our radio call, he had a great question to me yesterday and said, who is the point leader in each of the 10-game segments so far this season? And Vince is the point leader for games 31 to 40. And he's rightly getting attention. It is right to credit his ability and his his ability to read the play and know when to join in offensively is obviously top-notch. But when I praise Vince Dunn, I think we also need to praise Adam Larson because that's his D partner. Those two got put together towards yeah. the end-ish of last season. And, and Adam Larson is just a stalwart. He's played every single game that the Seattle Kraken have ever had. The guys love him. And he's such a quiet, sly, sneaky, good leader in the room. And Vince Dunn wanted to play with him more. He wanted to learn from him more. And he went back home this summer and really put in the work to be able to handle 
the kind of minutes that Adam Larson plays. So I think there was a challenge to Vince to Mm. up his preparedness in that way. And then I think, you know, much like we talk about a lot of the the active defenders or rovers in hockey today, a rover is only as good as their D partner. And with Adam Larson anchoring the back of your game on the ice, Vince can be more selective and more carefree, if you will, in allowing his offensive ability to shine through. So I think it's full marks to Vince for what he's doing. But for me, I think that Adam Larson is is the straw that's stirring the drink there to help him realize this potential. The Ken Klee to his Sergey Gonchar. Any chance I get to uh, notice anybody, any hockey player from in- Indiana, I'll always do it. Um, wh- one more thing on Vince Dunn. If if he continues this way, uh, it's checkbook time, right? I mean, you're going to have this season in the last year of your contract. Uh, he's in for a little bump here. True or false, Allison? Well, I mean, you know, and this is a stereotypical contract year performance. Um, he's obviously going to earn a raise. And I think that we've talked about how smart this front office is. I think that what's important here, too, is that the player is not only having a good year, the organization is, and the organization is on the build. And so is the player going to be willing to have, you know, communication that allows for collaboration on that number? So he's a part of continuing to build this. And this is such a a smart front office team, as we've talked about in the past. Um, hopefully it, mm-hmm. it's, it's a quick negotiation and it's sound and, and everyone is, is going to be logical and reward the player, but also make space for the additional tools that will need to come as this team builds to a contender. Uh, Ilay Tolvanen uh, finds the back of the net again for the Seattle Kraken. Um, what's more impressive to you, the fact that he's performing at this level now with the Kraken or the fact that I think the number is 22, 22 teams had a shot at him on waivers, but Seattle got him. Like 22 teams said, thanks, but no thanks. What's the, what's more impressive to you? <laughs> Honestly, it's the latter. I mean, I remember when that call came through and I was pleasantly shocked that, that the player fell as far as he did to get into Seattle's hands because he, he is, yeah. he is as promised. And I mean, he's, He's a delightful human in, in the interactions that we've had so far. And, you know, what I think was important about that win in Boston last night is Brandon Tanev's goal, which takes skill, but it comes off kind of a crazy bounce play, not, not something flashy, not something skill-based, if you will. So you beat Allmark that way, and then you have Tolvanen come in and beat him with that high-end shot. And so there were – Allmark couldn't expect the same kind of attack coming off crack and sticks. And – that shot was just you saw him call for it and then you saw him finish and that was what cemented i yeah. think the game for the crack and even after Tanev's first goal uh this is such an impressive squad one last thing for you and i do have to ask you about daniel sprong but one thing specifically about sprong so you know he plays just over 11 minutes a night he's got 26 points 13 goals came in on the on the on the tryout deal and ends up signing a one year's you know league minimum deal and he's one of the best values in the NHL for any team. Now, sometimes you would look at that and say, wow, look at that production. He should be playing higher in the lineup. I don't know that I agree with that. To me, the the way that Seattle has constructed their bottom six, and specifically that fourth line with you know Tanev and, and Ryan Donato in the middle right now, uh, to me, seems like a perfect fit. Where the temptation may be, wow, let's get this guy in the top six. He kind of fits in the spot that he's at right now, as frustrating as it might be for the player. How do you see Daniel Sprong and his position on the team? Yeah, you nailed it, Jeff. I mean, it's exactly that. Is that you know we talk about this all the time. We look at point production and say, give him more time, and sometimes optimal point production comes from the fact that the player is in the exact right role. And if you up their minutes, it's going to affect their ability to produce. And he's getting those minutes. He's getting his power play time and it's perfect for him. And again, if you're part of a squad that is winning, you're happy with your minutes. He's, he's been playing every game basically since, you know, the start of the season and he's producing and, and, He's sitting in in the room. We've talked about that before, the culture building with him as part of it. And uh, I think he'll take yeah. the fewer minutes for what's going on right now on the score sheet. 
<laughs> uh, real quick, Seattle faces off against Chicago tomorrow, and this road trip continues. And it, it's getting tougher, too. Tampa, Edmonton, New Jersey, Colorado next week. Uh, again, this was the month that was supposed to break Seattle, Allison, but quite the opposite uh, has happened. A fun run, a fun ride. Continue to enjoy it, and thanks, as always, for stopping by the program today. Well, thank you so much, Jeff, and I'll see you on the beach in a few weeks. Okay, I'll bring the uh, I'll bring the coconut oil. Here we go. Let's get the shorts. Uh, let's get the uh, flops, and we're ready to watch hockey. Yes, watch hockey. Thanks, Allison. Thanks, Jeff. There she. There you go. Allison Lucan is the uh, analyst for the Seattle Kraken and this incredible run that they're on right now. You know, we talked a lot about uh, the Buffalo Sabres being must-watch TV. Don't sleep on Seattle, man. Uh, it is a, it's a fun team to watch, and it's not as if they're like grinding out two-to-one games here. Like, they are putting up goals. Like, yesterday, they beat Boston 3-0. That is a low-scoring game. When you look at how Seattle has put together, you know, the uh, the games that they've played so far, the seven games in the month of January. Uh, okay, turn the page on Seattle. We're going to talk about the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Boston Bruins. We'll watch them on Hockey Night in Canada tomorrow. One of four 7 o'clockers. Late game has Oilers and Knights. Uh, Kyle Bukowskis is going to stop by. But before we get there, it is the random player of the day. And we are going into the Wayback Machine for this one. The Gordy Howe hat trick wasn't done first by Gordy. Who was it? We'll tell you next as America Show continues across the Sportsnet Radio Network simulcast on Sportsnet 360 and hockey tournaments all over Ontario, as I understand it as well. Keep it here. America Show continues. Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Kyle Bukowskis joins me here in a couple of moments. He'll be working ringside tomorrow. Boston Bruins, Toronto Maple Leafs, one of four early games on Hockey Night in Canada. Uh, the pregame show gets underway with your host, Ron McLean, at 6.30 Eastern. Uh, very much look forward to that. I'm going to, by the way, I can't promise that I'm not going to sneeze, but I just had like a sneezing fit on the break. And uh, I think I'm all right, Matt Marchese. But in case I go into one, I've had some epic ones as well. You may just need to, you may need to handle the affairs. This could be my Wally Pip moment. I could sneeze myself out of a job. You could just take over and, you know, take the show over, totally hijack it, and then never look back. I could Wally Pip myself because of a sneeze. Usually, appropriate if yeah, I my job that as, way, actually. Just don't hurt your rib cage, Jeff. Uh, did your wife put uh, a little bit of pepper on your on the <laughs> rim of your coffee or what? <laughs> Might have. No, she's at a tournament right now with uh, with my ten year old, and so I had to I had to make my own coffee. For oh this, no! For that. Normally, I make the first pot of coffee in the. So here's the peek behind the curtain. So I make the first pot of coffee in the morning. I get up before everyone, put the first one on, and then Claire likes to have a second cup around uh, around twelve eh, thirty, and so she'll drop one off for me while she before she has hers before she goes to work out that's very that's, nice. uh, that's the excitement there but i had to make it myself ah oh, where's my fainting couch first world <laughs> problems i had to make my own coffee for my noon hour radio show <laughs> tough life tough yeah life. i'm a loser yeah i know tough life tough life Bukowska's coming up here in a couple of moments all right time for the random hockey player of the day we've had some great submissions and again to get your submissions in jm show at sportsnet.ca we've had some beauties and we've had some great feedback on them too and i want to go over and uh, expand a little bit on some of the ones that we've done towards the, the bottom of the hour uh in the meantime what are we looking at today i think we're going in the wayback machine today oh we are and i would say the your favorite player that you have ever covered um harry cameron uh is our player of the day <laughs> for, <laughs> and yeah. that was sent in by marco coria uh, this was a great one because we've talked about Harry Cameron so much on this show, and I know this was uh, especially yeah. uh, for you one of your favorites. So Harry Cameron was one of the, well, first of all, one of the early stars of the NHL. He was a defenseman, a converted forward. I uh, was a forward for a number of years. Uh, turned in, uh, was converted to a defenseman and became one of the NHLs and even the forerunner to the NHL, the NHA's first great rushing defenseman. So before your Bobby Orr's, et cetera, 
um, there was Harry Cameron, who was outstanding, and it was a really well-rounded player as well. And we'll just get the obvious one out of the way quickly. I've mentioned this for a number of years, and people always go, oh, yeah, well, I never really considered that. <sighs> the marketing around Gordy Howe has always been excellent, whether it is Mr. Hockey, how he was always referred. And I can remember, uh, you'll like this as a producer, Maddie. Uh, while Gordy was still with us, um, one of the contingencies for interviews was always he had to be referred to as Mr. Hockey Gordy Howe. Like some of the branding work that the Howe family did around uh, around Gordy was outstanding. And one of the things that you know he was always branded with was the idea of the Gordy Howe hat trick. And it still gets referenced now on various broadcasts when a player has a goal, the assist, and the fight. It's referred to as the Gordy Howe hat trick. Uh, Gordy himself only had two. Uh, I think Gordy only had like 21 pro fights as well. It wasn't as if he had a, an epic dance card. And I think he only fought two, maybe three players that were actually bigger than him. Anyway, but the first player to pull off what is, we now know as the Gordy Howe hat trick was Harry Cameron. Uh, Harry Cameron was from Pembroke uh, along with Frank Nyber who was one of the early stars of the NHL, good friends, and whenever Harry Cameron joined a new team, usually one of the contingencies was that Frank got a job too, and Frank came aboard. Uh, he won the Stanley Cup in the NHA, the National Hockey Association, in 1914, and scored the game-winning goal in the process. Now, the night in question was December 19th, 1917, so that was the first night that the Gordy Howe hat trick was recorded, or as I like to call it, hipster style, the Harry Cameron hat trick. Uh, the Toronto Toronto uh, beat Montreal ten to nine. Cameron had four goals, one assist, and he fought Billy Cotu uh, to make it the first Gordy Howe hat trick. I'm not sure whether it was more of a wrestling match or a punching affair, but nonetheless, it was considered a fight. Um, a couple of other things about him. So his dad was a logger, um, and his dad passed away. He was working on a log boom, and he was hit by lightning and died. Have you ever met anyone, Maddie, that was hit by lightning and died? Well, Harry Cameron, the first player to ever record a Gordie Howe hat trick in the history of the NHL, his father was hit by lightning and died. And the one thing that you can uh, safely say, one record that will never be broken and will never be beaten is Harry Cameron won three Stanley Cups playing in one city for three different teams. Harry Cameron was on Stanley Cup winners in Toronto three different times. Once with the Blue Shirts, one with the Arenas, and one with the St. Pats. Maddie, safe to say that will never be broken. That record will stand forever. Uh, he did referee one game. Uh, after he retired, November 11, 1933, was Boston versus Montreal at the Forum. Frank Patrick, who recruited and then fired him after that one game, said he was too slow to play, to referee an NHL game. He would have been in his 40s at that point. And one of the things that historians have always been sort of back and forth on is who used the ver the first curved stick. And I'm sorry, amateur historians who think it's, you know, Bobby Hall or, or Stan Makita, uh, not so fast. It's either, it's either Harry Cameron, who was able to curve a shot, and there's various reports that because he had a curved stick, it's either Harry Cameron or another player from Ottawa, a guy by the name of Cy Denony, uh, who used the first curved stick. So that is today's random player of the day uh who sent that one in again maddie i don't have the uh marco coria in front of me who was it marco coria marco thank you i love that one thank you and thank you thank you thank you that is near and dear to my hearts i love putting going in the way back machine uh to talk about old school hockey players uh you want to have yours read and a little research done around that player J uh, jm show at sportsnet.ca thank you so much marco for that one in the meantime from the nhl on sportsnet and hockey night in canada in advance of the toronto maple leafs and the boston bruins he is the one and only kyle bokoskis who i believe holds the crown in the in-season cup right now that's uh me and elliot aaron ambrose are also part of are you the champ right now kyle i am and just as we all predicted going in the flyers the sabers and the canucks have been doing the heavy lifting for me this year <laughs> <laughs> oh, very yeah. good. I had I, I had I'm the I had the devil the devils the 
Oh, no, listen, uh, I gobbled them up. Or like November and December were really kind to me. I just gobbled up New Jersey, Tampa, and uh, and, and the Toronto Maple Leafs. So I think I might be done for the remainder of the season. I'm just going to try to hang on, and hopefully I've, I've built up enough of a lead. But um, I want to rewind to yesterday and start focusing here on, on the Boston Bruins. So tomorrow on Hockey Day in Canada, Leafs and Bruins, uh, always looking forward to this one. These two teams, they, they match so well, and I want to get to Matthews in a sec. Uh, but what did you see last night? I mean, the Boston Bruins don't lose at home, damn it. I know the Seattle Kraken are on this amazing rip right now, but what did you see in the Bruins last night? So I'll, I'll say, Jeff, like I, I worked that game in Montreal on Monday when Seattle was there, and I came away just so yeah. impressed by how quick they play, um, how on top of you they are, and... You know, I, I, it gave me, it really did give me like first year Vegas Golden Knights vibes, just in terms of like rolling four lines, mm. scoring from everywhere, and just the, the, the tempo that yep. they played at. Um, you know, we'll see if, if Martin Jones and, and Philip Grubauer can hold down the Ford enough for them. But as they've stockpiled points here over this road trip, this incredible seven gamer, and then rolling into Boston last night, I just thought they, they did the same thing, right? Like, what's the one thing that they talked about when Jim Montgomery took over from, from Bruce Cassidy in terms of implementing changes was freeing up the defense to, to get up in the rush a little more often? Well, I thought Seattle just did such a phenomenal job in disrupting all of that. Um, you know how well that Bruins teams work when they get rolling around in the offensive zone, but uh, I don't think the Kraken gave them much chance to, to allow them to, to establish there. I think you know, even Montgomery made the point after the game, like a lot of one and dones, and they were you know not just one second, but two seconds late in some decision making. So maybe that's a bit of mental fatigue. It's been quite the run for Boston too, right? Like you were there for the the game at Fenway Park outdoors, and then they go to California and sweep the three game trip out there. Coming back home, it's 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 not always easy to to ramp up again. But you know you figured at one point that the the regulation loss was going to come at the at the Garden. But I will say, you know, you know who else doesn't lose at home very often this year, Jeff? The Boston Celtics. So whether it's right. the ice or the parquet flooring, center stage at the Garden, it's been you know a, a house of horrors for most opponents this year, unless you're the Seattle Kraken. Well, you know, Scotty Bowman used to always have a real impressive home record, and, and one of his tricks was always, you know, before the visiting team came in for their, their first skate, he would always have, or I shouldn't say always, occasionally have the visitor's dressing room painted. So it was a smell of fresh paint when you enter the dressing room. It was, oh, we're so happy to have you here in Montreal. We're so excited that the Pittsburgh Penguins are here. We've, we've painted the dressing rooms for you, and these poor hockey players have to sniff paint fumes before they go out to play the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, always looking for an angle, always looking for an angle. You know, I've been making the point this week about the Boston Bruins because I've been wondering a lot, Keith. So what's the like? What's the it factor here? Like, what's the difference? And you know, there's a new coach certainly in Jim Montgomery, and a different way that they're playing. It's a lot. It's a lot more free. It's a lot more fun uh, way for a hockey player to play. But essentially, it's the same team. You know, added you know David Krejci who returned. And the one thing that I keep coming back to, and the more that I look through you know hockey history, recent and you know uh, more significantly historical, the presence of not just one but two elite level defensemen is a real charm and a real luxury in the NHL. I've been trying to bang home the point that the big difference with Boston is all about Hampus Lindholm. And that acquisition has completely changed the fortunes of the Boston Bruins that, you know, now Jim Montgomery can have not one but two elite defenders on the ice. Like, you can have the whole game and either have Charlie McAvoy or Hampus Lindholm on the ice together. To me, the big difference maker in Boston hasn't been Bergeron or Brad Marchand or Linus Allmark, who's been great, by the way, but it's Hampus Lindholm. Agree or disagree? It's 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 a really good point, Jeff. Um, and, and I just think like it's it's and it's also just a byproduct of of the scenario that he he was brought into last year at at the deadline, right? Like I, I'm always so impressed whenever I get a chance yeah. to go work games in in Boston, like just how that room runs itself whether it was when char was the captain before and and bergeron now with that core still in place like you never feel like they're in in any real danger of of things going completely off the rails and you know i I don't have the exact numbers in front of me but they're a really good third period team this year i mean that tells you how they're able to close things out i mean you mentioned lena salmark who's got to be in the conversation to be the front runner for for the vesna this year um, but but it's it's an interesting point about you know the the wrinkle of bringing him in and 
and and now this year how how well things have gone and being into a situation again as they say like under Jim Montgomery where defensemen are are able to to be more involved up up ice and and in the rush than than maybe they were allotted under under Bruce Cassidy um, you know that's that's right up his alley whether it's him or whether it's Charlie McAvoy Brandon Carlo getting his game back on on track this year too um, it just seems like you know mm-hmm. you've got a, an elite level D man that's coming into to a situation that that really does cater to his his game and and enough firepower up front for for him to to put the the puck in their hands um it just seems like it's been been a match made in, in heaven and you can see why you know as soon as they acquired him from anaheim last year at the deadline the extension came shortly thereafter because they believed he was he was a a right piece to have with their with their future here and um you know it's, it's they've just been an, an incredibly fun team to to watch this year and how they just continue to rack up points uh, they they really have, and you know, just just as a quick aside, I got, I got a text from someone the other day and heard me talking about you know Lynn Holm and uh, what he's been able to to do to that blue line and do to the Boston Bruins. And this is someone who's, you know, without giving away identities, in the position to know this. Uh, he said, yes. "Look, if Hampus Lindholm isn't injured last season in the playoffs, Bruce Cassidy is probably still the head coach of the Boston Bruins, and Jim Montgomery is probably the head coach of the Vegas Golden Knights." Interesting how that one Andrei Sveshnikov hits changed the fortunes of Jim Montgomery and Bruce Cassidy. Peter DeBoer was going anyway, but those two coaches and their fates were all wrapped around that one hit by uh, by Andrei Svechnikov. Um, okay, other side of the rink, Toronto Maple Leafs tomorrow facing off against the Bruins, the early game on Hockey Nights, um, and the questions revolve around Austin Matthews. I want to park a little time and talk about the Detroit game last night, but you know the question about Austin Matthews and you know one of the points that I was making on the podcast with Elliot was it sounds as if or it feels as if Matthews was going to have to take a couple of days off anyhow because of whatever this nagging thing that he has but because the Maple Leafs stumbled out of the gate and really didn't correct the ship for a while he couldn't take that time off and now the things are going a little more swimmingly for the Maple Leafs he felt comfortable saying we're in a good spot we're winning right now I can take a couple of days off but I want to come back for Boston. What are your thoughts on you know this, this week in the uh, in the life and, and saga that is Austin Matthews? <laughs> well, I think and it's funny. Like I think the Bruins are probably having some conversation about that too as the season goes on, right? Like they they padded their their spot in the the standings there. Okay, now guys are nicked up. Do we look at maybe getting some rest here and there down the stretch? But I think for for Toronto and, and Austin Matthews, I know you talked a lot about it, Jeff. Like you just you can't play at, at this pace at this level and at this frequency for 82 games like without getting getting banged up so I, I don't you know buy into this whole well as hockey adapting the the basketball load management type philosophy like I just think you know time comes where certain players like they they, they need a few games off because they need to get their their body right so I know I think the, the video resurfaced again of that cross check he took from from Jamie Benn and uh, against Dallas early on in the year is that you know the, the what the root of the cause uh, not sure but um, I just think that they're in they're in a spot now where they can afford to do it no question you know the, the lineup looks a lot different um, without them part of it like you know whether it was moving Kerfoot up there like they did for a bit uh, last game or moving William Nylander to center to give him a, another look there um, it's just not the same group up front um, than when 34 is uh, part of your your starting 12 there so um, I, I don't. I, I think it's it's probably a, a good position for them to be in. The fact that they look at where they are in the standings, and that you know, barring anything crazy happening, they seem to have a pretty good grasp of the number two seed in, in the Atlantic. And if you've got you know a star player that you want to be as close to good health as possible when the the real meaningful games start to roll around, uh, you know, you got an opportunity to, to mm-hmm. get them a bit of rest. Like it just it just seems like it makes way too much sense to me at, at this point. So I'm of the belief, Kyle, that the uh, the Maple Leafs will be active come deadline time, and, and there's two. I think there's two trades that I think Kyle Dubas wants to make: one for a forward, and one for a defenseman. I don't know that either are of the you know superstar splashy variety, um, specifically on the back end. Like I can see, and again, I'm not using this one 
specifically as someone the Maple Leafs are interested in, but just as, a, as an example, like uh, you mentioned Seattle, like a Carson Soucy type, like a, a, a defenseman like that to go along with, with one forward. Um, when you look at the both of these teams, and we'll see on Hockey Night tomorrow, Boston and Toronto, um, under the umbrella of trade deadline is on the horizon. What do you see each team looking for? I mean, Boston seems a little bit more set than Toronto, but what, what do you see each team looking for come deadline? I really like. I, yeah, I, I'm with you in in the Boston sense where you know maybe it's it's a complimentary piece that you have that maybe they they plug into your bottom six somewhere. Maybe they're just as a good option as a 13th forward because you know injuries are going to come up and be part of the equation. Um, but for Toronto, I, I do wonder about the the scoring aspect, Jeff. And and you mentioned the forward. Like I I, I don't know. Like like you see them looking at someone potentially that could play. With Tavares and, and Marner, like where are you leaning there in terms of the the forward outlook? If if what would be on Kyle's to do list? Yeah, I, I, I could see that. Like a, a a a top six a top six forward and a bottom pairing or depth right. defenseman. That's that's what I'm. That's what's weaving around my brain these days. But I right. listen. They're going to have some money to play with, play play with, and and do some things here, right? Totally, I know, like, and everything's so tight. But, but I, you know, I, I thought that it was a wonderful conversation you and Elliot had with Ryan McDonough earlier this week, and he talked about like how how hard that Toronto team was over that seven game series against Tampa last year to, to play against, and, and how they felt. You know, there was a bit of uneasiness yeah. there at Game Six, down a goal going into the third period, everything on the line. Um, like I, I think we're we're well past the the era. Of, well, the Leafs are can't be a team that's trying to score their way out of trouble. I think they've, they've moved on from that phase. You know, if anything, you, know, you look at their power play efficiency, the last three playoffs, it's, it's under 15%. Um, like, it just seems like there's those moments. And then even Game 7 at home against Tampa last year, like, I, I didn't feel like they were scared of the moment and, and they got tight. Like, I, I thought the, the effort was there. Obviously, the one goal gets called back. And, you know, you got a two-time defending Stanley Cup champ that just finds a way to make one more play than than you do so um yeah. I, i'm with you in, in trying to highlight you know trying to find just a little bit of extra offense there when when you could use it and when it comes to the critical moments of, of a playoff series because you know as they've been a team in the past that's been trying to that's been built on skill they've certainly moved away from that and become more of a, a balanced well-rounded group um and now maybe there's there's an opening there but you know as we you talked about how tight it all is with regards to the salary cap, trying to find someone that could perhaps just give them a little extra nudge offensively, um, you know, when, when it matters most yeah. here later on this year. Um, real quick before I let you go, and always appreciate your time. Of all, like you've covered a lot of different teams this year. Uh, I'm not going to ask you which one is the best or which one is the worst. Uh, Kyle, which is the most interesting team to you that you've seen up close and personal? The, what's a, the, the one team that you're most curious about this season in the NHL that, you know, whose games you've worked? Well, I, I, think, I, I think Boston will, could be up there. Seattle was one where, again, I walked away going, holy smokes, like that was just a, a different level that, that I wasn't really expecting. And I, I was, was really impressed watching them. Uh, up close and personal, but you know, Boston. There's there's the Bergeron factor. How much longer is he going to play? Um, they know this is as good as year of any to 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 try to go for it again and and to get one more cup with mm-hmm. with this group. They've been so close a handful of times. Um, I just just wonder where where this all all goes for them. Like Alina's Allmark story is is a really interesting one. Um, had a chat earlier today with Andrew Allen, who was his first goalie coach in, in Buffalo. Just for some storytelling on the broadcast tomorrow, he gave me some great uh, great insight on, on Allmark as he first made his jump from, from Sweden over to, to North America and to begin his, his life as a, as a pro goalie over on this side of the pond. Um, there's, there's a lot of interesting characters there in, in Boston, and, and so as they're running away with things here in, in the regular season, I just think there's, there's a group there and, and a captain that, you know, just the, the future is, is up in the air, and they seem to be positioning themselves as good as any to, to try to run it back one more time. Uh, who knows uh, how long Bergeron decides he wants to keep playing because, I mean, it looks like he could go for, what, five more years if he wanted to? I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible oh, yeah. the way he's but still the, able to keep the, going. The the only thing is, you know, and I always wonder about this with with Bergeron. I mean, you know, going back to the Randy Jones hit years ago in the, against the Philadelphia Flyers, 
the things that has been done to his body, like, and first of all, sure. he has nothing left to prove. He's had success yeah. at every single level. Like you talk about a guy who's like surefire. He's walking, he's moonwalking into the hockey hall of fame. Like it's Patrice Bergeron. Like I, I, I don't like I'm with you. I think he can play another five years at least, but I just don't right. know that he wants to put his body through more considering how much he's already put it through. You know what I mean? Right, and the ability to potentially go out on top. Like, how much of an attractive feeling is that? But I go back, oh. what was that? When he got the, the one milestone earlier in the year, and they're all chanting, you know, one more year, one more year in the room afterwards. You know, whatever he decides to do, I know his teammates are likely to make it hard on him. Uh, it's really true. Okay, listen, we'll, uh, we'll wrap on that. We'll be watching tomorrow night, Hockey Night in Canada, Toronto Maple Leafs, and the Boston Bruins uh, hosting that one is Kyle Bukowskis. Thank Kyle, thanks so much as always for, for joining me, and uh, take it easy on everybody else in the pool. And, you know, uh, first of all, I, I do Speak like the way you haven't rubbed it. In, uh, actually, no, no, you know what? I'm, I'm kind of disappointed that you haven't rubbed it in anyone's face yet. I'm disappointed well, I, in your sportsmanship, Kyle. You know what? But the problem is, I keep looking at at your total there. What is it? Fifty eight, fifty nine. Like it's it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's, it's almost sixty. Yeah. So I, yeah, I try to throw okay. a couple so gifts chirping. into the, chirping, into the group chat. Yeah, I, I do. I throw a couple <laughs> gifts in the group chat, as you know, there to just try to chum the waters a bit. And uh, yep. anyway, I guess I got to do more prodding. It's good. I love it. Listen, uh, you be well. We'll be watching tomorrow night. Okay, Jeff. Thanks for having me, man. There he is, the great Kyle Bukowskis, uh, working ringside tomorrow. It is the Bruins and the Toronto Maple Leafs. That's one of four early starts, by the way, tomorrow on Hockey Night. The other ones, uh, the Habs facing off against the Islanders, uh, the Senators, and Avalanche. Um, what else we got? Vancouver and Florida. I don't know what the rest of the day is going to bring for the Vancouver Canucks. All I know is everything from last night was a huge protein shake uh, for Sports Talk Radio uh, in Vancouver. Another gift, another gift um, in the team that is endlessly entertaining to cover. Uh, They'll face off against the Florida Panthers. uh, And then the late game, the Edmonton Oilers face off against the Vegas Golden Knights. So five big games on Hockey Night tomorrow. Everything gets underway with the pregame show starting at 6.30 Eastern with your host, Ron McLean. Uh, a couple of moments here before we get to the weekend review. I'll bring on Maddie Marchese. Um, Maddie, there's you know one of the interesting things about doing this show and having this type of audience and people that interact is you get a lot of you get a lot of people that can add color to stories that you tell and you, that can add a lot of color to um, you know to things you want to talk about. So there's been a, there's been a few. Uh, that have come in. And first of all, the big gift has been this uh, random player of the day because, you know, after I go off the air, I'll open, I keep my DMs open. And sometimes it's ugly, folks. Sometimes it's dangerous, but I do it anyway. Uh, Some of the feedback is fantastic and get, you know, wonderful stories that come in that can color in a lot of the things that I mentioned during this random player bit. So you want to hear a good one? I love this one. Yeah. So we mentioned Harold Snaps yesterday, okay? So we did a thing on Harold Snaps, and Theo on Twitter sends me this one. And I'll, I'll, just, I'll just read this out. So Theo sends me a DM and says, Hey, Jeff, my good friend's grandfather used to work at Pacific Coliseum for years. This is after I told the story about Harold Snaps and Doug Risebrow fighting under the stands at Pacific Coliseum in a Vancouver-Calgary matchup. Okay, so his buddy's name is Dan Bailey. His great-granddad's name is Ken Brown. Uh, He was working the night of that fight under the stands. Story goes that he tried to intervene between the two, and I think he caught one on the noggin. Sneps (laughs) patted him on the back and said something to the effect of, Buddy, I love you, but don't ever do that again. That's uh, his granddad, Ken Brown. That is a one that's Dan Bailey's. And then, then he submits today... He said, there's more to the story. Ken Brown worked as a PNE employee. The players all knew him and called him Brownie. And he had personal relationships with Harold Snaps, Stan Smeal, even Orlin Kurtenbach. Oh, there's one of my favorite players. Uh, and Orlin Kurtenbach. He used to stand behind the bench, sort of in the tunnel, and chew gum. He was on TV during the 1982 run all the time. And management asked him to stop chewing gum because everybody could see him. And it looked dumb. 
So the family is going to try to get him to listen to the show tomorrow. Hopefully, he can mention all of this. He'd really enjoy it. Ken Brown, that one is for you. Great stories. That's the awesome. Pacific Coliseum, Harold Snaps, Doug Risebrow fight, and chewing gum behind the bench in 1982. Uh, I love stuff like that. Theo, thanks so much for sending that one in. So that's the, the random follow-up. The other one, and you'll like this one. So we were doing the random player the other day, and one of them was Jill Bilodeau, Bad News Bilodeau. And we mentioned an event that happened in Syracuse at the, uh, the War Memorial, and Lucas Favalli, Syracuse Crunch play-by-play voice. And that guy's got a great call. Um, he sent this DM... I love that the first two random players have led to stories with Syracuse ties. In reference to Hanson Brothers stories at War Mem in Syracuse, here's an article that was written about the family before the Crunch hosted their Frozen Dome game inside the Carrier Dome in 2014. So the story was, when I was doing AHL Marley's games with John Bartlett, I really wanted to go to Syracuse. I really wanted to go to the War Memorial Legendary Arena. And there was a family that would dress up uh, as the Hanson brothers from the movie Slapshot. And when one event occurred, I thought it was a goal or something, but it could have been something else. You know, they were one, uh, I think the father would stand up and run around and, and body check the penalty box and the place would go crazy. I'll tweet out the article that, that Lucas sent me here. Um, but he does, and the, the, the family is Frank, Brenda, and Ray Simonoski. Frank, Brenda, and Ray Simonoski. Um, Lucas did submit that unfortunately the family was going through some health issues several years ago so they stopped doing that bit Um, I'll check to see if they're still season ticket holders and he followed up this morning with me and said the family does still come to games here but they got too old to keep dressing up for every game but the family still does and I know what you're thinking Maddie please someone in Syracuse pick up that tradition because that one is fantastic i know that one hits you where you live matt marchese yeah no that one's really good i mean that's the one thing with the the wonderful history of hockey and the people that listen to this show like we can do as much research as humanly possible and still won't get those great little nuggets right that's why we encourage anybody who has stories Obviously, these stories have to be true, Um, but if they have stories about any of these players um, (laughs) that we would like you to send them in, Uh, we actually even found out like uh, Richie Sutter was texting us uh, last night and um, and he said Harold Snaps was the best card player that he's ever seen. Like those are the little tidbits that are that are great. Right. Like I know nobody has a, a story about Harry Cameron, but when I was looking at Harry Cameron's numbers. And you look, the guy had like yep. 97 goals in 127 NHL games. Oh, yeah. It's insane. Oh, yeah. Um, and not a lot he of goaltending in that first era. Great, first great rushing. Yeah. No, that's true. Um, well, listen, uh, the first great rushing defenseman in the NHL. Yeah. Was Harry. Was Harry and he's kind of, he's really been lost to history, um, but he was one of the great ones. Here, here's another one. So a guy by the name of Cincy Mike. So you know where this one is heading. So... When we talked about Gilles Bilodeau the other day, um, he sent this one in uh, on DM. Thanks for the trip down memory lane. I was a big Stingers fan, Cincinnati Stingers, the WHA. I was a big Stingers fan in their brief existence and remember the Thanksgiving Day massacre well. Good Lord. Good old Stu Cat, that would be Paul Stewart. It reminded me of the commercial he was in for the local station that broadcasts Stingers games in which he was in boxing gear and punching a side of beef like Rocky Balboa, true classic. I'm sure it's out there floating around the internet somewhere. You know, Joey Kenward in Vancouver sent me a couple of pictures of ads of Cougar shoes. Yes, Remember I saw I those yesterday too. Harold Snaps was yeah. the pitch man. Did you, you saw those? Yeah. How great did those shoes look? Those are great. So, now, so anyway, so now my I got to hunt down this uh, this commercial that, uh, that Paul Stewart was in to try to find it. And if you're listening and you know where I can find it, please direct me there. Also, since he Mike sent me this one, he said about the, uh, the Thanksgiving Day Massacre, I did not attend the game. I was in Birmingham and lived in Cincinnati. I did watch it on the local station. I remember thinking... Rick Dudley was going to kill someone. I think he ended up getting suspended. He was a tough SOB and he could play. That's true. If you ever talk to him, though, ask him about the promotion night where the Stingers gave out a 45 single of him doing two covers. 
On the one side was a cover of an Aretha Franklin song. Oh, you no. You feel like a natural woman, but he sang <laughs> natural man. It was as bad as you might have, uh, as it was as bad as you might think. And in the category of things I wish I had saved. See, I'll tell you what. This random player of the day thing is going to be the gift that keeps on giving. Oh, I'm yeah. going to have all these new obsessions because now I got to find that. Like one of my favorite treasures, I have uh, Jim Schoenfeld, who is a really great singer. Yeah. You know, you think of Jim Schoenfeld, you know, big burly hockey player, et cetera. And of course, we think about the New Jersey Boston situation with Don Koharski. Yes, 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 I get it. But great singer. And when he was with the Buffalo Sabres in the 70s, he recorded an album of covers. An album of covers. Yeah, I've seen it. Um, including, and the hit, and you can find, like, there's a there's a couple of the clips. I have the album. Actually, Dave Bedini gave me the album. He had two. So he gave me one of them. It's like, amazing, like it's a bunch of Beatles covers as well. But you have not lived, Maddie. I assure you, you have not lived until you've heard Jim Schoenfeld uh, singing all along the Watchtower, the great Jimi Hendrix classic. Okay, so I have the list of songs here, Jeff. Oh, okay, you got it? Yeah. I, guess I got the album somewhere floating around here in the, the basement where I, where I do this show. I should probably have prepared and brought it out so you can see it. I don't know if you're watching on 360 or Sportsnet now. Okay, give me the list. All right, so list. here's what I see. This And everything on the internet is true. The so album, this by the way, the, the, the album is called Shoney, by the way. Yes. It's very cool. It's brilliant. Um, okay, so All Along the Watchtower. <laughs> I got a nightclub inside. All Along the Watchtower. That's the best one. I saw her standing there. Oh, Beatles, this baby. one, this one. Great Balls of Fire. Yes, please. Jim Schoenfeld. Uh, Chain Gang, Before, You Can't Do That, You Always Hurt the One You Love, <laughs> Barbecue in Heaven, which sounds like a new country song, yeah. um, Don't Let the Sun yep. Catch You Crying, and Hey Bulldog. That is the list hey from Shoney. Yeah, Jim Schoenfeld. It's a great album. It's a, a brilliant piece of, well, you know, all through the 70s. This is where the 70s was great. I know I go on a lot about the 70s, but everything about the 70s was awesome, people. And then one of the great things when it came to hockey is whether it was Gila. You remember Gila Fleur's disco record? No. So Gila Fleur recorded an, an instructional, there was an instructional record that Gila Fleur recorded set to, uh, set to, um, set to disco music. It's oh. another one. I got. I have it here somewhere, like in this stack of junk that I have. Um, oh yeah, but in the seventies, like there was like the Rangers did it, uh, the Los Angeles Kings, like the Triple Crown line. Forgive my misconduct. There was some beauties. <laughs> so some bad. real, real. So bad. Oh yeah, I know it's great, eh? But everybody was doing it. It was awesome. Kid, they didn't care. They were young. They were playing in the NHL. You know, Joel Darling is the executive, one of the executive producers at Hockey Night. You know, would always tell me about you know Jim Schoenfeld and singing and you know going to the open mic bars and you know getting up on stage and he was always the performer. And you know, I've always made it's interesting too if you talk to and I know you have if you talk to athletes, you know, a, a big part of them wants to be and always wanted to be rock stars. And mm -hmm. if you talk to rock stars, they'll tell you they always wanted to be athletes. I think the symmetry there is. Athletes aren't athletes and rock stars aren't rock stars. They're actually just professional travelers. Someone said that to me once. It was a pro wrestler said, we're not, we're not wrestlers, we're professional travelers. And that extends to athletes and that expand, extends to rock stars as well. Anyway, this segment's been a gift. And those are a couple of the follow-ups um, from the ones that we heard this week. Thanks to uh, everyone for uh, submitting in. And again, the DMs are open if you want to add to a story, color it in a little bit, send your own story about anyone that we have or have talked about on the uh, the random player of the day. Please feel free. We'll uh, clean it all up and present those on Friday in advance of the weekend review, which is next with Matt Marchese across the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. The Merrick Show continues. Keep it here. Keep it here. Big guests and bigger opinions on everything happening in Leafsland. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the program. Time for a week in review. But uh, Maddie Marchese, before we get there, I had a conversation this morning. 
sticking with the theme from last segment, had a conversation this morning with David Salter, who works at NTV News in Newfoundland. He's a former communications director with both the Winnipeg Jets organization, the Montreal Canadiens as well, was the communications director of the uh, St. John's Ice Caps when John Scott was sent there. Oh, yeah. So uh, that was an interesting day. conversation this morning about... About all the behind this. Oh, he said for sure. And then when he got when he got nominated, and then when he went and he won the MVP and came back and 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 all of it, it was it was just an interesting conversation because we all remember that was you know Arizona. Like they tried. This is off the conversation with Greg Wyshynski from yesterday. It was a good follow up. He sent me a note saying, "Hey, I'll 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 tell you how it how it went down from from our point of view." So Arizona trades John Scott to Montreal. They try to sort of sneak uh, sneak around. Um, you know, getting John Scott out of the All-Star game by trading him and sending him down to the American Hockey League. Um, he inevitably ends up going anyhow. We all know how this thing played out. Um, but I was curious, you know, what was, you know, what was John Scott's attitude? What was his mood? And Salter said, like, he came to the American League, great attitude, loved it. The guys loved him, was easy to deal with, all of it. He said as a communications director of this team, it was the busiest, you know, time of his life trying to, you know, uh, negotiate and, and plan interviews with, you know, not just hockey outlets, but me- just mainstream media outlets from all over North America because it became that much of a story. And when you really think about it, you know, Arizona, <laughs> the Coyotes tried to send him as far away from Arizona as possible. Like, Literally. they couldn't send him to Siberia, so they sent him the far, to the farthest, the farthest away point east that they could find, and that was St. John's, Newfoundland. He said that John Scott had a great time, great attitude, and was outstanding and real easy to work with. Anyway, appreciate it. What Salt a wonderful place, by the way. Give me the, the behind the scenes. I've never been. I was oh, telling you, man. Too, I, I want to go because I want to go because here's what I want to do. Because you know the Terry Ryan's dad, like senior Terry Ryan, like senior Ryan has this legendary basement. Yes. Of, and of of you know I've faced of of FaceTime with senior before, so he's shown me some of the stuff how, how good it looks. But I'm dying to go like to go to senior's place just for one night and hear all the stories and check out all the memorabilia. And apparently he has like this big barrel of pucks that he saved from the WHA. And every time someone comes to visit, um, you get to take a puck. I think Ken Reed grabbed the Minnesota fighting saints puck. Salter said he grabbed a San Diego Mariners puck. Like, Oh yeah. Like it sounds like the best time, man. Oh man. In on this one. So, my when my I, when brief, I get when I get out there, I'm going to seniors' place. Yeah, my brief time in St. John's, uh, we were there for the World Under Twenty Ball Hockey Championships, which was incredible. Oh um, yeah, yeah. We frequented yeah. we frequented George Street a lot um, during that time, <laughs> uh, and one club specifically that I will that will remain nameless um, for the time being. Yeah. But um, yeah, TR's. I've seen the videos of of TR's dad's basement, and it is. Legendary. By the way, so by the way, um, the Minnesota Fighting Saints have one of the greatest, if not the greatest, logos of all time, in my opinion. Yes, yes, so good. They do. It's so I good. I mean, all those, all, all those WHA logos were fantastic. But everything about again, everything about the WHA was because NHL. Don't forget, NHL was still a very conservative. Like I've always phrased it this way: the NHL was button down, crew cut, wrist shot hockey the WHA was long hair mustaches bench clearing brawls and back scratch and slap shots yeah that way it was a a, there was a totally different product than the National Hockey League at that time anyway we can review Maddie what are we talking about today all right so the Boston Bruins and I know we talked a lot about Seattle but let's let's give ode to the end of the streak the Boston Bruins lose their first in regulation at home the record now sits at 19 one and three um, RIP to the record. It was super impressive. And I honestly felt it, the way they've been playing. It honestly felt like they were never going to lose at home. Correct. And I thought that this was going to be okay. Seattle's playing really well. There's, you know, they're, they're, they're mowing into the month of January, but it's all going to come in, come to a halt because, you know, they're playing the Boston Bruins who are going to show them what an NHL team, like a real elite NHL team does and how they can behave. Like, I think if you're Seattle, you're looking back on the season, no matter, no matter what happens the remainder of the way, no matter what happens in the playoffs, if they make the playoffs, what they do, if they make the playoffs, etc. I think this was the day, like last night was the day 
where everybody, even if you're, if you're on the fence about Seattle, if you thought, eh, maybe this is cute, this is just a little bit of a, a streak, but Seattle's going to come crashing down. I think last night in Boston was the moment where everybody, this team forced everybody in the NHL to respect them. That's how it felt to me watching yeah. this game. Like, 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 Seattle's going into this one saying, we need to send a message, and this is going to be our moment. Because if we wilt against the um, uh, against the Boston Bruins here, everyone's going to say, see, we told you Seattle wasn't really that good. Now watch. Chicago, who's won like three games in a row now, is going to blow the barn doors open wide against them tomorrow night and be like, how do you beat the Boston Bruins but not the Chicago Blackhawks? Um, but yeah, kudos to both these teams. Like that streak for the Boston Bruins, outstanding. Um, and Seattle marching into Boston and doing what no one else has been able to do this season. Story Be- of the week. Speaking of, the week. Speaking of those beloved Blackhawks, uh, that to me last night, the Avs hit a low point in their season. I did not have Chicago beating Colorado on my bingo card. I know there was a disallowed goal that you could make the argument should not have been disallowed um, because the player in question was driven into the goalie and he couldn't do anything about it. Um, But that, to me, could be one of those moments that the Avalanche look back on because of how tight the Western Conference is and saying those were two points that we absolutely needed. I know you are not as worried but put me in the category of I am worried about the Colorado Avalanche getting back to the playoffs. I'm not, put it this way, I'm not worried about the Avalanche and no one's feeling sorry for the Avalanche. Oh, I know. Because they're coming off a Stanley Cup victory. Like no one is... No one is boo-hoo about the, uh, about the Avalanche. You know when, like, when the Detroit Red Wings playoff streak came to an end? Was anyone crying for the Detroit Red no. Wings? <laughs> was anyone saying, oh, wow, that's a real address? No, not at all. You just had you know, an, an, an embarrassment of riches, uh, Stanley Cup victories, playoff appeal. Like, no one was feeling bad. Like, I felt bad for the San Jose Sharks plenty. Mm-hmm. It was one of the best teams of that era not to win the Stanley Cup. I felt bad for the Ottawa Senators. And again, they were one of those teams in that generation that were one of the best teams to not win the Stanley Cup and probably should have. Felt bad for the Buffalo Sabres. You know, that generation with, you know, Briere and Drury and Campbell and Ryan Miller. And um, I felt bad for them, Jason Pominville. I felt bad for, for that team, Lindy Ruff behind the bench. No one's feeling bad for Colorado. I think, as a matter of fact, there's probably a lot of teams, and maybe Vegas is top of this list, that are enjoying watching them squirm like this. You know, Colorado, who was never able to really get past the Vegas hump and didn't get a shot to do it last year en route to a Stanley Cup victory, um, you know, Colorado's been able to do now what Vegas hasn't been. Vegas has always been their kryptonite. I I still do think that if Colorado's going to do it again, Colorado is going to repeat as Stanley Cup champions. They kind of have to go through, like symbolically, they have to go through Vegas. Not unlike when the Washington Capitals won their Stanley Cup. Mm-hmm. Did you not feel that they had they had to go through the Pittsburgh Penguins? Yeah, just in order like to get there. Just like they if, just had to, they had to slay slay that dragon. Yeah, just like if the Toronto Maple Leafs are to have any success, they have to beat the Boston Bruins. It's just the way it works. So, Don't disagree. Okay. Or the Ottawa Senators had to, would, would have had to dispatch the Maple Leafs somewhere along the yeah. way. Yeah. So here's the only thing that upsets me about the way Colorado's playing. And I'm not even upset, but I love dynasties. And if there was a team that had the pieces in place, and yes, injuries have kind of derailed that. And, and when you win a Stanley Cup, there's roster turnover. But I love dynasties. And with the with the core and the age of the core that the Avs have and the high-end talent that they have and the fact that they can win Mm -hmm. despite not having elite goaltending, I really felt that that was a team that could win back-to-back cups and challenge for a third, much like Tampa Bay has done. And that's the only thing that gives me pause about not feeling sorry for them. So the question then becomes, what do you consider a dynasty? Like the Islanders four in a row, that's a dynasty. That's not happening again. You know, the Oilers four in five years, that's a dynasty. You know, uh, Montreal previous in the 70s, that's a dynasty. Do you call the Philadelphia Flyers in their back-to-back 74-75 a dynasty? Uh, what do you call a dynasty now in the NHL? Because I thi- it, does feel like, it does feel like Tampa. Yes. 
is part of a dynasty. Yeah. Three Stanley Cup appearances and two wins in three seasons. Yeah, and I think you put the Blackhawks in there. I think you put the Kings in that conversation too from the, the early 2010s. Um, but Tampa, for me, was the one because I honestly thought that they were going to win three in a row. I know Colorado was a juggernaut, but it just felt like that was mm. – because for my money, that would have been one of the most impressive feats to win three straight Stanley Cups in a salary cap era where the roster turnover is pretty – pretty in, pretty significant and the fact that they didn't have to go through yep. all that much meant that they managed their team really well um one more and that's in your this one's okay. in your wheelhouse um massive major junior trade so olin zellweger gets dealt from everett <laughs> for um if i'm not mistaken i think it's the so 2020 two born kids are part of this draft with all the picks that were, that were given. What was it like? It was like four players and like eight draft picks or 10 draft picks or something. So it's four firsts, two prospects, and then hang on second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth. And I think a couple of those are conditionals. So like 10, yeah, 10 that was, pieces, that was the deal. 10 pieces. Yeah. Do you, do you, do you not think that, Wow, if that's what they got for, if that's what, um, you know, if that's what uh, Everett got for Olin Zellweger, what could Regina have got for Connor Bedard? Oh, a franchise. See, part of me, part, well, part of me thinks that that was, that that was Dennis Williams, who's a GM of Everett and coach and coach the gold medal, medal team Canada squad. That was him just saying, uh, yeah, we have Zellweger available. We'll take the Bedard deal. Yeah. Because like, how much more could it have been? Well, how, how, like, how much more could Kamloops have offered for Connor Bedard? Well, think think about we had this conversation. Ah, we don't. Have, we have some time, so I'll get this out quickly. You and I talked off air about this. Go. What would it take for an NHL team to trade for for the first overall pick in Connor Bedard? There's only one team that could no. do it. Really, the LA Kings, the only Who? team that could do it. I don't know. I had, uh, if if it could even be done, even I don't even think them. it could be done. So. One thing I want to mention here before we go off air. Do uh, you know what happened last night in the OHL? Shane Wright made his debut with the Windsor Spitfires. Windsor Spitfires faced off against the Saginaw Spirit. You know what's significant about that game? What's that? Two, player, two players granted exceptional status facing off against each other. Mm. Michael Misa of the Saginaw Spirit and Shane Wright of the Windsor Spitfires. History made in the Ontario League. Uh, thanks to Kyle Bacoskas for stopping by. Allison Lucan, Elliot Friedman as well. Um, it's been a really busy week around these parts and everyone keeping it, you know, on track. Uh, Derek Brandeo, thank you. Jen Rolnick, thank you. And our producer slash fill-in host slash uh, the guy that's going to take my job one day, Matt Marchese. Thanks, pal. Everyone, have a great weekend.